0: Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program.
1: Hello and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado. Welcome. We've got uh, myself, Jeff, and Brian with you today. And today we're going to talk about Christianity, which is kind of a broad subject. Before we go there, Brian, uh, how are you doing today?
0: Hey, doing well. Yeah, I like these podcasts where we devote the entire podcast just to answering questions. I mean, it's the premise of our podcast, right? But also it allows us to kind of give our listeners a flavor of what kinds of questions are
1: submitted. And, you know, over the years, we have received lots of questions on lots of topics from lots of people all around the planet. So yeah, I agree. I think it's uh, Hopefully insightful and interesting to our listeners. I understand there are a lot of people out there that perhaps have questions similar to what our listeners have. And so from time to time, we'll take questions on different topics and form them into a podcast, which is exactly what we're going to do today. Now, I was really half teasing. And today, the questions are indeed somewhat about Christianity. And I understand that's a, that's a pretty broad category. But in general, the questions we've got today for you are related to Christian conduct, beliefs, etc. And hopefully the the, the shorter answers that we provide today uh, will encourage folks to investigate the scriptures that we provide, as well as, at least near the end, we'll give folks pointers to our website where they can find more information. So, Brian, anything else you want to say as we get started before we jump into it?
0: just one quick thought and that is you know the bible some of these subjects the bible has a lot to say about and so therefore we tend to have a lot of passages into the point jeff made some of these we won't read we'll just give you the reference if you want to take notes and take a look at it that's great we're just doing it for the sake of time so that we don't spend too much time on each question so anyhow that's why
1: we're doing so. so the first question comes in from dean and it's related to what's you know commonly called the the lord's supper Is it wrong to take the communion, which is another synonym for the Lord's Supper, is it wrong to take the communion to a faithful Christian that is homebound and unable to attend church worship services?
0: Yeah, I like this question because I think it's something we can all relate to, you know, whether it's somebody that's a Christian that's been a Christian for years and now maybe they can't come because they are in a nursing home or assisted living, we call it today, or... You know, maybe it's just somebody that's sick and it's one particular service that they're missing because of that. So let's just see what does the scripture say about this. Well, first and foremost, when we study God's word, we see that the purpose of our assembly on the first day of the week is primarily to remember the Lord's death. In fact, we see that in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where it says that the Christians came together to break bread. And so we see the reason why that we meet on the first day of the week. And then we also see that it's something that is done when the church comes together. And so if our listeners want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one thing that you'll notice here is that there are many occasions throughout this chapter where Paul refers to them, as in the church at Corinth, coming together as a church. And specifically, Paul in this chapter is addressing a problem. So they had a problem where some were coming and not waiting for their brethren and partaking without them or separately, sort of like in factions, if you will. Others were actually eating common food and and sort of commingling it with the partaking of the Lord's Supper, which also is not something that should be done. So notice in verse 18, he talks about when you come together as a church to partake of the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So we can learn from that, coming together in one place. Verse 21, he says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. So we can reasonably infer there that we shouldn't, you know, do it ahead of others. Like, hey, I got here early. Let's just go ahead and partake of it ourselves. Let's not wait for our brethren. No, it's a collective action done that's done by the church. And then verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So we can conclude from these passages that, you know, the Lord's Supper is intended to be taken in the assembly of the church. And, you know, Jeff, sometimes we get questions uh, around, well, how about if I go hunting and, you know, there's no church nearby? Can I just take of it myself? Well, according to what we just read here, no, because it should be taken collectively in the church and in the assembly. So if somebody's ill or homebound, maybe they're working, And cannot partake of the Lord's Supper, then you know it's understandable that they will not be able to assemble with their brethren. And not only are they not able to partake of the Lord's Supper, but if you think about it, they're not able to participate in the other acts of worship either. So they can't offer prayers and edify their brethren, they can't sing, they can't hear the word preached, and those sorts of things. And so I think the bottom line though is that we do not see any authority for taking the Lord's Supper to them which makes sense, right? Because it was to be done in the assembly. And it's important to remember that, you know, when the Bible, when God establishes clear instruction on what we are to do in worship, then it eliminates any additions or changes, much like with instrumental music in worship, right? We, we don't have the right to add anything in. And I guess, Jeff, at a basic level, this is kind of the, you know, the age-old argument, does the silence of the scriptures permit or prohibit, right? And so... Uh, in this particular case, we, we can clearly see that we don't have a right to add things to God's
1: work. Yeah, you know, good point. And, you know, I've heard of, you know, situations where once the worship service has started, people may come in late, sit through the, the Lord's Supper, and then leave. As if there's something ultra important or critical or, you know, even magical, whatever, about the Lord's Supper. You know, forget the, the as you said, the, the singing and the prayers and the sermon and the encouraging one another, just as long as I partake of the Lord's Supper. It's like, well, no, all those are aspects of group worship for the, the local congregation.
0: Yes, exactly. All right, this next question, Jeff, was submitted by somebody anonymously and they said, I've seen several church of Christ buildings with crosses on them. Is this biblical? Is the cross a biblical sign of Christianity?
1: Well, and you know, this is a good point because I think within the religious community, quote unquote Christianity in general, you know, it's commonly accepted to have a cross, you know, either in front of your building, on top of your building, inside your auditorium, etc. And people. You know, just naturally accept it, right? Don't even think about it. And yet, generally speaking, within the religious group that calls themselves, you know, Church of Christ, which, which we are, their buildings tend to be a little bit, you know, less ornate. You know, there's not a lot of uh, decorations in terms of religious symbols on the walls, etc. But I guess this particular person has found, you know, some Churches of Christ, that have started to adopt the religious symbology uh, to include, you know, having crosses. You know, they ask, you know, is this biblical? Well, certainly the cross, you know, as a Roman method of executing people is associated with Christ and certainly associated with his, you know, atoning sacrificial death, you know, on the cross. And, and, you know, Brian, honestly, I, I know it's very common to use quote unquote Christian symbols in a whole variety of settings. Jewelry, uh, the, the Catholic rosary, You know, people may have pictures on their wall of Donna and Child or the Virgin Mary, or they may have a, a crucifix on the car's dashboard, you know, whatever. In fact, just personally, I just might throw in a, a small story. You know, Sometimes you'll see on bumper stickers, on cars, you know, bumper stickers. And at one point you could see like a fish symbol, which I think was was used by some of the early Christians. Uh, and then later you see a symbol with a fish with uh, legs, with Darwin inside. So, again, you know, different symbols have different meanings. To be fair, I don't think you'll find, a spe- unless I miss something, a specific scripture that addresses specific symbols. But I certainly think there are some uh, general biblical p- principles that would apply. For example, you know, is this, you know, bordering on idolatry? You know, making, worshiping... Praying to or paying reverence to a man made object. Uh, Certainly, we see that uh, a lot of places, both Old Testament and New Testament. For example, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, uh, even New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, Colossians 2, verse 18. And so, in some ways, I believe these general principles would apply to jewelry or statues or paintings. Uh, that people elevate or pray to or you know believe as some kind of good luck charm, et cetera. So there's you know there's that concern, you know, some form of idolatry. Second is the practice to be seen of man, a substitute for truly doing good works. Matthew chapter five verses thirteen through sixteen, uh, Matthew chapter six, the first six verses, uh, as well as sixteen through eighteen, would start to address that. Um, Brian, you, you may know people that, you know, they'll, they'll wear a, a cross you know, as jewelry, you know, around their neck, you know, proclaiming their religiousness. But, you know, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they dress, their profanity, you know, says otherwise. And, and, and basically, you know, our, our belief and obedience to the law of Christ, you know, should be, you know, based on what we do not based on some outward you know, piece of jewelry or, or ornament. And certainly our Christianity should be seen by others in the way we dress, the words we use, you know, where we go, where we don't go, what we talk about, the way we treat others, et cetera. The other thing I'll just mention, uh, that these kinds of quote unquote Christian symbols, you know, have been created by man as tradition over the years. So in terms of the scriptures authorizing such symbols, or pictures, or flags, or other objects as quote-unquote official images or official icons of Christianity? No, there's certainly no scripture that would do that. So, you know, basically, you know, cross on a building, yeah, you're probably into a gray zone, and kind of going along just like other religious groups when you need to be, you know, somewhat distinctive and limit yourselves to what the scriptures have. Brian, I don't know if you have any, you know, perspectives on that, but that's that's what I would have to offer.
0: No, I like your answer. I think you covered it well and certainly give our listeners some things to think about why we shouldn't use those symbols of
1: Christianity. All right. So Eric writes in with the following question. What's wrong with syncretism? And of course, I had to look that up. Taking practices from other faiths and applying them to our life with Christian values like Christian yoga or contemplative prayer or prayer labyrinths. There are some that say that making them Christian, in fact, sanctifies the practice. Is there any biblical basis and scriptures that would permit or refute such practices? And Brian, so you know, I actually looked it up, defined as the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. So I guess it's like a merging together of Things from uh, I guess you know Christianity, Judaism, Islam, paganism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, I guess, would be the uh, the essence,
0: yeah, that's right. In fact, I was like you when I first read this question, I had never heard of syncretism. But yeah, he did a good job in his question, kind of giving the high level. And so i would I would guess say, you know, to say first and foremost, the short answer is no. You know, any modifications to the worship as God has defined it, would be sinful. So we don't have the right to merge practices religiously, you know, from other groups. Now, like you, Jeff, I looked up a definition, this one from the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, and it says, reconciliation or fusion of differing systems of belief, as in philosophy or religion, especially when success is partial or the result is heterogeneous. And then it says, and the attempted reconciliation or union of irreconcilable principles or parties, as in philosophy or religion. That's kind of a detailed definition, but really, if you kind of dig into this a little bit, I looked like at Wikipedia, and I I can't remember what other sources, but it it basically talked about in, in that article how its origins really center around Egypt and how it became common during that time and also during the Hellenistic period and and even within the Roman Empire to really try to keep the peace by merging varying beliefs to keep people from rising up. So it really was the intent was to kind of keep their kingdoms cohesive, as we might say. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because we see that in our world today, there's a lot of religious division. And really throughout history, the religious division has led to the Catholic Crusades or Islamic Jihad, you know, it's led to wars and animosity. So you can kind of see how leaders of a country would want to encourage that. Well, we really see this in the religious world as well today as it relates to community or what we might call all-faith churches that attempt to be united in their differing beliefs, what we call unity and diversity, for once again, the sake of peace and harmony. And then we also see this in a lot of denominations and in the Catholic Church where they often practice, if you analyze their practices, religious practices, they often, you know, have a mixture of old and new law, you know, the law of Moses and the law of Christ. So they'll take some of the ceremonial aspects of the old law, they'll take things like tithing and other things, and they'll sort of blend them with the law of Christ. And so the problem with that practice is that we can't say that we are in harmony or that we are united unless we're all following the same standards as taught to us in God's Word, specifically in the law of Christ that we live under today. So, a couple passages that speak about this, Philippians 3.16, Nevertheless, Paul said, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So once again, we can only be joined in the same mind and same judgment if we're following the same standard. Now, when we think about following elements of the old law, once again, that we see in a lot of religions today, well, the Bible makes it clear that the old law was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross, and you can see that in passages like Matthew 5, 17, Romans 10, verse 4, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. And so now we only live by the law of Christ. And I'll just give one passage here that really kind of drives that point home. And it's in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, where Paul said, You know, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but if we... Or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So, anyone who would assert that you know taking practices from other faiths and applying them to our life results in them, quote-unquote, making them Christian or, quote-unquote, sanctifies the practice, uh, they're definitely teaching a different gospel and, of course, are assured if they do so that they will be accursed. And so, Jeff, this one's pretty straightforward as much as people do want to get along, to go along, or whatever we say, you know, just can't do that from a religious perspective because we would be accursed.
1: Right. Well, and especially if you consider these other religions are not aligned with the true religion, uh, you know, Christianity, uh, as taught within the New Testament. And so I'm going to gather together some practices from false religions and add it to the true religion. It's like, mm, that, that doesn't make sense. In fact, I'm reminded of uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, where basically if you want to start teaching the doctrines, or uh, the commandments of men, man-made doctrines, which basically is what false religions are, uh, it renders your worship
0: vain. Yeah, and I think the irony there is, I don't know how you could have an all-faiths church. You know, I could say, well, you need to be baptized to be saved. You say, no, no, all you have to do is believe, right? Isn't that promoting dissension? And I, so anyhow, I just have never understood how that can work unless you literally just say nothing and you all hug each other. But anyways, I don't want to be tried for that.
1: Well, and, that, and you know, if, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you're talking Unitarian Universalists. Yes. Which says, you know, not only Christianity, but Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. So you can believe that God is a singular God, God God is a trinity, God is a pantheon. So long, I guess, as you, well, I guess it even goes beyond that, because I think they even teach uh, universalism. That basically says, it doesn't matter what you do, you know, you'll eventually be saved by God or God or whatever. So, yeah, it just doesn't quite make logical sense, much less doesn't make sense with respect to the scriptures, which have been proven to be God's word based on available evidence. Yes, yes, exactly.
0: All right, Jeff, this next question, I have to say, this is the first time for me, and probably not for you, seeing you administer all the questions that are submitted to the website, where a couple has submitted a question together. I thought that was interesting. So, yep. uh, Luis and Alan ask, should a Christian allow themselves to be hypnotized? That's kind of an interesting question, and honestly, not one I've thought about. So what do you think about that? Yeah.
1: Well, and it's, it is a good question, uh, particularly since the Bible doesn't use the word hypnosis or hypnotism, which we understand is uh, a condition or a technique that can be used today to get people to somewhat open up, you know, they can respond to questions based on memories they perhaps have forgotten, whatever, uh, and can be very susceptible to suggestions from the hypnotist. And therein, therein lies the danger, you know, in some degree or form, it is a form of mind control. You know, is anything wrong with it? Well, at the very least, it has some potential good value, but also is potentially dangerous. You know, again, being susceptible to suggestions from the hypnotist. You know, if it's in a professional setting with, you know, controlled questions for treating certain forms of uh, mental illness, mental anomalies, etc., in conjunction with, you know, physical therapy, drug therapy, mental therapy, etc., All that, you know, being administered in a professional, clinical kind of setting, you know, does have value, you know, just like drugs and surgery, etc. But because it makes you susceptible to these kinds of suggestions that, you know, that's where the danger is. Because if you have, you know, amateur or a secular hypnotist administering, you know, they can start planting seeds in your mind that don't need to be there. Certainly the Bible does talk about mind control but more so in terms of personal uh, accountability, personal responsibility. Uh, Proverbs 23, verse 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 talks about be careful for nothing. It goes on to talk about you know prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which pass all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus goes on beginning in beginning verse 8 to talk about the importance of taking in into your mind important things whatever things are true honest just pure lovely of good report if there be any virtue if there be any praise think on these things so again pointing out the, the need for personal uh, mind control if you will Chapter 11 of, or uh, verse 11 of the same chapter of Philippians 4, Paul learned whatever state he's in to be content. Again, personal attitude control, personal mind control, etc. Certainly there may be situations where professional help, uh, hypnotism, etc. is needed and is a valuable technique, recognizing, of course, there is some danger. You know, again, even within scriptures, we talk about, you know, resorting, Where appropriate to you know medicine to doctors etc. You know for example Luke being a physician Colossians chapter four verse fourteen etc. So you know key point being it is a technique like many medical techniques there's some degree of danger you know like with drugs right as an example that you know one would approach want to approach with a great deal of caution. There you go Brian how about that?
0: Yeah I really like your answer and I guess like several Bible subjects it's. Your answer is really it depends, right? So it's like right. consider both sides, if you will. Yeah,
1: well, exactly. Especially since it's almost like opening up your brain's operating system and allowing people to put new code.
0: Certainly, be dangerous. Oof, yeah,
1: yeah. But the power of of, of uh, hypnotic suggestion, there you go, uh, is certainly some a, a powerful tool. From what I understand, i have not gone through it, but I think we had a former preacher, you know, well, a preacher who used to preach for us. Uh, who had had used it to to some good advantage. And he said, yeah, you can. You just want to be very careful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that definitely
1: makes sense. All right. So you get the next question again, submitted anonymously. And I just might as a side comment mention, um, you know, if you come to our website, there's an ask a question button. You can give us your name if you want to. Don't have to. You definitely have to give us your email because that's how we reach back to you with with a response. And then, of course, there's a section for Actually, submitting the question. Anyway, so Anonymous writes in, I have a question that was about James chapter 4 verse 17, which says in part, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. For example, I come across many people who are not Christian in day-to-day life. Does this mean I should preach to them all because it is considered good to do? And if I don't, then is it a sin? There you go, Brian.
0: Yeah, valid question. And it's kind of interesting, you know, this term doing good is a broad category. There's a lot that we can fit into that. And I guess, you know, at a real basic level, we can define that by the bible helping us to understand what doing good is right and and we all i would also say have a sense of okay what does it mean to do good versus evil for instance but as it relates to preaching and teaching others the gospel because we should do good it's it's really we do it i think because we're interested in helping them to be saved and to be in a right relationship with god now if he's saying all as in you know should i teach everyone am i obligated to teach everyone well there are many methods that people are taught you know, certainly like this podcast or reading the Bible themselves. And certainly, you know, they could go listen to a sermon. So I think we just want to be careful not to say that we're obligated to every single person we come across, we immediately preach to them the truth. Well, if we're at work, you know, we might have work restrictions against that. And I guess that what I'm not saying is, well, don't make any attempts. But I think we can overburden ourselves to say that if I fail to teach every person I come in contact with, I will be in sin anyhow and maybe he's not saying that i just wanted to put that out there to say well you know consider what's going on and consider what you can do and beyond teaching you know what other kinds of good things could you do so think about the elderly person that you know maybe you can go help them out in their yard maybe you can bring them a meal whatever right so there's all kinds of things of that fall into this category of doing good now what's interesting about sin is you know we can commit sin right lie cheat steal whatever but then there's also this category of what we call sins of omission, where we do indeed fail to do something good that we know we can and should do. So let's look at an example of that. Over in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about those who will be cast into you know everlasting punishment. And it, the Bible makes reference here to those on the left hand. So there will be this judgment. And on the day of judgment, the those who are wicked, Jesus said, Uh, In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Verse 44 Then they will answer him and say, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Jesus said in verse 45, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, you know, it's God's intention that we do the good works that he prepared beforehand, according to Ephesians 2.10. So, you know, it's important that we learn what good works are and do them. And then we have to use judgment, you know. So I'll give you an example. In the United States, in a lot of cities, if you drive around, it's not uncommon to have people standing on the corner saying, give me food, give me money. In fact, it's become very common. And so you could feel obligated to help every single one of these people. But sometimes if you dig a little deeper, when you just hand them cash out the window and they go buy booze, is that something you really want to facilitate? I would argue, I think many would, that you need to understand, first off, what their situation is, how you might be able to help them. Are they simply not willing to work and therefore you're enabling that? I mean, there's just all kinds of questions. So I guess, Jeff, it's kind of a balance between using good judgment, not being judgmental, And failing to do good because you're skeptical or
1: lazy or whatever, right? Yeah, and all all good points. Don't think I can really, you know, add much to it. So what's the next question? So Jim asks, as a Christian, what am I
0: supposed to learn from Noah's curse on Ham? What did he do wrong? It seems that his father should
1: take heed not to get drunk and naked. Fair point, right? True and for our listeners who might not be familiar with what the person is referring to you have to go back to genesis chapter 9 where after the flood basically noah planted a vineyard got drunk and was in his tent basically uncovered or or naked Genesis chapter 9 roughly verse 20 starting then uh, ham uh, the father of canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders, and went backwards, covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backwards, backwards, so they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Well, I would tend to agree with Jim, you know, first and foremost, you know, Noah's behavior <laughs> basically points out the dangers of alcohol, and I might also add, you know, drug. Consumption. I might also add that, you know, sometimes the Bible just reports historical facts without necessarily passing judgment on them. And this is, you know, one of those cases where, yeah, Noah did something he shouldn't have done. And as we saw, the interesting aspect, you know, Noah's youngest son, Ham, you know, went into his tent, saw his father's nakedness. And I guess instead of quietly taking care of the problem, it almost sounds like he made this big deal out of it, you know, to his brothers. Uh, to their credit you know they carefully respectfully sort of took care of the situation praised by noah because of their action you know verses 26 and 27. some commentators you know maybe read some degree of various attitudes in, into ham and what he did I mean, honestly brian i don't know how far you can go with that uh is it something he probably should have taken care of quietly discreetly yeah is it something that you, sh- you know should not have you know gone gone spreading you know, did he take pleasure in it? Yeah, again, those kinds of things you don't know. But I think the key point is, you know he did something he shouldn't have, and Noah to some degree, and this kind of gets a little interesting. We see you know God kind of communicating with you know people within the Old Testament. Sometimes, you know, their words are their own, sometimes their words are you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. don't know. Sometimes they they prophesy the future. So I don't know if Noah, you know, looking at Ham's actions, and through that saw what would happen with his descendants, you know, the Canaanites, uh, and some of their, you know, sexual sins, that he went ahead and pronounced this uh, basically prophecy of what Canaan and his descendants, how they would act, don't know. But again, coming all the way back around to the original question, you know, things we can learn, well, first of all, be careful about, you know, alcohol, drugs, etc., and when you do encounter situations that involve sin, if it makes sense, if you can, you know, handle it discreetly, as opposed to gossiping, publishing it, uh, telling other people that don't need to get involved, etc. Probably at least uh, some of the lessons that we can learn for our behavior today. Brian, any other thoughts?
0: Yeah, that's good advice. In fact, as you were going through it, I was thinking of, you know, Proverbs eleven thirteen: a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. So we, I think we can all relate, you know, at times in life we see something happen or we hear about, you know, so-and-so did X. Yeah, it's definitely gossip. We just go bread that out. We should, in fact, conceal it. No need to share that with anybody. Why bring additional shame on that person? So anyhow, appreciate those thoughts. Sure.
1: Well, and honestly, you know, sometimes if you just kind of quietly approach a person, they may be more receptive than if you, you know, publicize it and the whole whole group of people kind of confront them publicly. And, you know, as, as you know, from like a science fiction reference, you know, up come the shields <laughs> and it makes it harder to uh, you know convince them of their error.
0: Yeah. And often it also comes back on your own head, as we might say, if you if you reveal facts about somebody else, there's a good chance they might do the same for you because they were bothered
1: by that or whatever. Revenge. True. Kind of True. And of course, you do that. <laughs> In which case, both of you took the wrong path. All right. So next question comes in from Pamela for you. What is the definition of a prodigal? How can a Christian be a prodigal? Yeah, it's an interesting uh,
0: term, isn't it? Prodigal. Not one that probably many of us use today, but it really just at a basic level means, you know, one who lives lavishly, wastefully, or foolishly. And so those of you that uh, are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. This was a term that some of the translations used to describe this son who did just that, live lavishly, wastefully, or foolishly. And so, you know, in Luke chapter 15, we are told a story about a man's son who asked for his inheritance. His father granted his inheritance, and then he went off to another country and squandered it foolishly. So you can find that over in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Now, the new King James uses the term prodigal but uh, other translations you know we'll use like riotous loose reckless or wild in fact i'll just read luke 15 13 it says and not many days after the younger son gathered all together journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living so once again reckless loose wild so forth in fact if you look at this term in the greek it says riotous a dictionary definition lacking restraint, especially marked by indulgence and in things such as drink or promiscuous sex, deemed vices. And so that would be the very definition of it. Well, a Christian can certainly be prodigal, especially immature Christians in fact sometimes you hear people say oh you know so and so is just sowing their wild oats as if well understand why they're wild well we might understand that they're more apt to be wild when they're younger especially but it's really an idiom that just means they're doing wild and foolish things and it certainly doesn't mean that it's okay because well they just don't know any better right so uh, you know one thing that solomon in his wisdom what the Holy Spirit warns us about in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse nine and 10, is that, well, first off, God does want us to enjoy life, especially in our youth, but He's still going to hold us accountable. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning of verse nine, "Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you on in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment." He finishes up in verse 10 by saying, "Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. So sometimes we tell young kids, grow up, right? And what we kind of mean is, hey, be more mature. And then once again, I think this is a really important statement from Solomon, because we don't want children or youth to not enjoy themselves. There are plenty of wholesome things that cheer them on and that can bring them joy. So let them live a little bit, as we say. But once again, don't mistake that for, hey, it's okay to sin. You just don't know any better. You'll eventually get there. That's not what it's teaching. So anyhow, Jeff, over to you.
1: Well, and, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of some of the, you know, portrayals like on TV and the media and commercials and, you know, it's the classic uh, like advertisement for beer and other forms of alcohol where people are just, you know, having a party and having a good time and. Uh, and yet at the end, they say, well, uh, yeah. oh, by the way, also drink responsibly. <laughs> at the same time, they're promoting their product and, and promoting kind of this lifestyle. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, we, we hear about, you know, people that really get into that kind of a lifestyle. And I like your definition, one who lives lavishly, wastefully, or foolishly and get themselves into all kinds of trouble just by, you know, having a good time. You know, party hardy, as some people like to say, unfortunately. Yeah, and in which some cases there could be lifelong consequences, right, because of their sins. So, yeah, something that takes Very to, true. So. Um, well, both, I mean, even, even in a physical sense, I mean, you know, drunk driving and accidents. Uh, Longer term addiction, the kind of example you're setting, the the kind of uh, stumbling block you're putting in front of others. Yeah, yeah, many many things. All right,
0: Jeff. The next question is anonymous, and it's this person asks: If you do not support a church, do donations
1: to Christian organizations or ministries count as tithing? Yeah. Simple answer: No. <laughs> How's that for being brief? <laughs> so I think we need to first do a little bit of clarifying. I mean, earlier you talked about mixing Old Testament, New Testament. Well, this is one of those examples where a lot of religious groups today talk about tithing. Tithing is an Old Testament law of Moses, fixed 10% concept, not related to the New Testament, not related to Christianity, which commands us to give as we have been prospered, no fixed percent. So I just want to clarify that from the very get-go. The other thing I'll mention is the New Testament does command faithful Christians to come together, band together in local congregations, Uh, meet on a weekly basis, observe various acts of worship, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, This includes giving into the local treasury, uh, into the Lord's treasury, if you will, to support the work of the local congregation. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. So, quote-unquote, if you do not support a church or a, a local congregation, well, you know, first of all, you got a problem with that because, again, Scriptures require faithful Christians to join together with fellow faithful Christians into a local congregation, and if you're refusing to do that when you have the you know opportunity, then you know that's that's not right. The other thing Brian I'll just mention real briefly is this, this concept of Christian organization, Christian ministries. You know there are indeed a lot of groups out there that are claiming to do a lot of good things in terms of you know, humanitarian aid. You know. Food, clothing, shelter, etc., and they do want to somehow associate themselves with being "quote unquote" Christian. So this is not a local congregation, and in many cases, this is you know not a work of the church, more the work of individuals. At least from a New Testament perspective, the only organization that God has given responsibility to do things like spread the gospel to the lost or edify the saved, etc., is indeed the local congregation and certainly you know numerous institutions or societies or ministries you know have been created financed by you know people to do this but that goes beyond what the scriptures authorize and the other thing i might add is is a lot of these you know, quote unquote christian non church para religious organizations i might say you know are organized basically you know by humans with human wisdom man made organizational structures that you know go beyond what local congregations have been authorized to do and structure themselves govern their work you know under the oversight of elders so bottom line is you got a lot of people out there that are claiming to be christian but not churches doing the work that god gave to churches or allegedly doing work that god didn't give to the churches but it's some sort of you know human institution which Again, is, is kind of a, a mess if if you will. You know, allegedly doing a lot of good, but yeah, you know, what's their authority? Where would they derive that from the scriptures?
0: Yeah, and the good news is that God has also mentioned to us that, you know, all of us have a responsibility to do good. And as we were talking about earlier, and certainly talks about, you know, helping out those in need. And so individually, absolutely we can participate in these things. It's just not the work of the church, as you mentioned. And so that's the difference.
1: Right. And to take money away from the congregation and give it to some man-made organization, you know, no, not authorized to do that. Right. So the next question for you comes from Vicki. Are the Jews still God's chosen people despite their rejection of Jesus? I've always been raised as a Christian and in a Baptist church that they are still God's chosen people or God's chosen children. However... My brother is a Lutheran minister, and he says they are no longer God's chosen because of the same reason, their rejection of Jesus. So there you go, Brian. Are they God's chosen people or not? The Jews are
0: not God's chosen people, but not necessarily because they rejected Jesus, as this friend of uh, Vicky's mentioned, but because the gospel is for all of mankind. And so if a Jew rejects Jesus like any other man, they will not be God's children. And so, no doubt, under the old law, they were God's chosen people. But when Jesus came, and he fulfilled the old law, and he brought about the covenant that we live under today, his covenant, the law of Christ, then whether or not we're God's children, sometimes we say, or God's people, is purely based on if we're obedient to his will and does what he asks us to do. And so we see an example of this in the account of Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, You know, here Peter teaches him that the gospel is for all. In other words, what you'll see in the New Testament referred to as Jew and Gentile. In other words, all people. And so this revelation, if you will, that God gave him through an example that he had in a vision, and then certainly after God had sent him to Cornelius to teach him the truth, it led Peter to conclude in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. It says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So that really is it. That sums it up. One other passage, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. Or there is no difference. then if you skip down to verse 28, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So the New Testament makes it clear that God is the God of any who would choose to do his will. And as Peter mentioned in Acts chapter 10, Anyone who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him.
1: John? Yeah, good points. I mean, you know, as you said, originally the Jews were, you know, Abraham's descendants were identified for special treatment uh, considerations by God through Moses, given the, the law, uh, the Old Testament law, sometimes called the law of Moses. But as we see within the New Testament, you know, that that was for a time to Basically, set up a, a culture, if you will, through which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you know, Son of God, could come. Uh, and now that old distinction between Jew and Gentile uh, has been done away. So, good points. Yeah, that's right. That's no
0: longer valid, maybe, <laughs> or appropriate, anyhow.
1: Well, and I know this, a lot of people will get kind of hung up about that, especially when it comes to the end times, premillennialism. Re-establishment of the nation of Israel as a sign of the times, leading up to the Antichrist and the tribulation and all of that, which uh, is based on our understanding of the Bible, is, is not true. And so they they want to have this lingering, you know, literal view of Revelation that does say yes, the Jews will, as as a Jew, as Judaism will get reinstated. Like, no, don't think so.
0: Well, you know, it was shocking to the Jewish leaders and the Jews in general that God would bring the Gentiles, as we might say, into the fold. But when you look at it for what it really is, it's just saying God loves all of mankind, wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we certainly want to serve a God that is like that, that is welcoming to all who would just simply do what he asked them to do.
1: True. Very true.
0: All right, Jeff, the next one is an anonymous question from someone who says that they are a widow. She said, "My beloved has been gone over five years, and recently a Christian gentleman has expressed some interest in possibly dating. He is divorced. I wish to please the Lord above all else. Would it displease him if I dated a man who is divorced? I have not dated as yet. It may never if I am not asked by a godly man.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's there's several aspects of this that i I think we need to unpack. Now, there may be some people that think, you know, once you've married, Some people refer to finding a soulmate, etc. That if if they should die, that somehow you are violating your marriage vows if you get remarried. Or you're displeasing God because your former spouse is looking down upon you from heaven and is getting upset and jealous. All of that, right? Fundamentally, Romans, I believe is chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 say that from god's perspective you know death ends the marriage uh, and the marriage vows and the marriage obligations and you're free to marry somebody else in fact the whole concept of saved people looking down on you from heaven and seeing what's going on you know that's foreign to the scriptures too that's more of a, a side comment so can you marry someone else yes now honestly if your conscience bothers you that's one thing but to say it's religiously wrong no, you are allowed to marry. Uh, now, so that, that, that's on her side. On his side, you know, this person is divorced. So that opens a totally new discussion. And, you know, Brian, we do get lots of questions to the website uh, about people who have family problems, to include divorce, remarriage, etc. cetera. And as always, we need to be very careful in this case, like in all cases, to try to give a strictly scriptural response without letting our emotions and feelings get in the way. Certainly in our modern society, you know, divorce is very common, exceedingly common. You know, people have been divorced, married, divorced, remarried, divorced a second time, etc., right? Do the New Testament Scriptures deal with marriage and divorce and remarriage? Absolutely. In fact, the Pharisees asked Jesus a very similar question. Uh, you know, they basically ask what reasons could one divorce one's spouse? Uh, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, as well as Matthew 5, verse 32, carefully look at his response. Uh, basically, the Pharisees ask, you know, can, I, can I put my way my spouse for any reason? And Jesus said, no, you can't. He answered that God did not permit divorce. Generally speaking, that's the rule. There is one exception, and that is when... Fornication or we might call adultery is involved. You know, reasons such as falling out of love, not being a soulmate, lack of love, irreconcilable differences, financial problems, etc. Host of reasons given today, or no reasons given today, you know, particularly in no fault divorce states. No, Jesus takes an entirely different perspective that basically, you know, marriage, one man, one woman, four life, one exception. And that is that of being a fornication or adultery. In fact, he bases that, his response, all the way back to the creation, which basically makes it timeless. So the quick answer is, the fact that this person is divorced, well, you'd have to dig into it. You know, what was the state or circumstances of any and all of his previous marriage or marriages and or divorces to make sure they were on a scriptural basis and not for some man-made basis. So there you go, Brian.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. We didn't purposely organize these questions in this way, but it's a really good segue into the next question, which also kind of covers some elements around adultery and divorce and all that. So.
1: That's true. Uh, basically, another anonymous submission: Can a Christian get married to someone who has had sex before marriage? In essence, not who's not a virgin.
0: Yeah, and so my thoughts are: Well, it depends on if they had sex with the person that was married. So, just you know, as Jeff just mentioned in Matthew chapter nineteen and verse nine, Jesus makes it clear that there's only one reason for divorce, and that's if somebody is unfaithful in a marriage. So, let's say a married person has sex with somebody who is not married they don't have a right to remarry. And the interesting aspect of this is that you could have somebody two people let's say who have never been married so neither of them have been married. Well, they could both be guilty of fornication, which is, you know, really unlawful sex because that's reserved for marriage. And they would be eligible to marry if, you know, once again they they need to repent and follow God's laws when it comes to sexual intercourse. But they could marry, but if there's a married person that's involved and having sex with somebody else, whether that other person's married or not, they do not have the ability to remarry. So going back to this question, can a Christian get married to someone who's had sex before marriage? It depends on, once again, if they were married previously or not. And so it's just an example of you have to kind of know their past, you have to know if they were married before, and then you can make a judgment based on the scriptures based on that.
1: Yeah, and as you indicate, there, there's certainly, when uh, marriage is involved, as I said before, in summary, you know, one man, one woman, four life, one reason. And obviously, that's that's very different than today's modern culture, and hence why we need to exert a lot of uh, careful scrutiny with whoever we would want to marry. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, because we do see more
0: of a pattern these days where people uh younger people are just not getting married. They're just living together. And then in some states where they live, if they've lived together for six or more months or whatever the time frame might be, they're considered common law married. And so you can get into some real circumstances where you have to put a lot of thought into, okay, should i be marrying this person and, and there's a whole variety of considerations beyond did they just have sex with another person right so anyhow just like an important relationship that we really need to get right the first time so please do your homework if you will on that one
1: well and there's a, there's a little bit of a nuance here and that is if i'm contemplating marrying someone who has had sex before regardless of who they had sex with are they coming into my relationship with a casual attitude? about sex, about fornication, about whatever. That, yeah, you know, they may want to marry me and yeah, we may have a good time together, but given a casual attitude, are they going to be, like, tempted to have sex outside of our marriage? Just like they had sex previously. Or maybe they were a stumbling block to some married person before. You know, again, it's what kind of a track record or attitudes or mentality uh, is involved as well. So there's, you know, certainly danger from that perspective.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point, and I completely agree. It just goes to show you there should be a lot of thought and consideration that goes into it because it does go beyond have they had previous sex. It really does speak to your point because they could be a drug user or they could be casual about many things, and so you really have to get to know who you're marrying because as you just pointed out, boy, if they're bringing some of these ungodly attitudes into a marriage or ungodly practices, whew, that's, that's going to be tough, right? That could be uh, setting yourself up for failure, as we might say.
1: True. Very true. So I think we got one more question. Yeah,
0: you get the last question. This one comes from Royce, and I like the question. It's it's an interesting one. Should Christians pray for God to test them?
1: Yeah, and this was kind of, uh, you know, you said you had a, a new question you'd heard of with hypnosis. Well, this was kind of a new one for me. And Brian, you might be able to think of something, but unless I've missed something, I think the answer is no. I don't think we should pray for God to test us. It could be a be careful what you wish for sort of thing, right? <laughs> Well, Brian, I'm sorry. That was my first thought. Be careful what you ask for. (laughs) Uh, Now, certainly the scriptures reveal a lot of topics for our prayers, you know, praise and thanksgiving and intercession on behalf of others and making requests. And certainly our requests can cover a wide variety of things to include physical things like food. Or spiritual things like wisdom and deliverance from evil and God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, etc. But to pray for God to test us. Well, first of all, I guess we need to recognize that according to James 1, verses 13 and 14, God does not tempt people. Specifically, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires desires. And enticed. James chapter 1, verses uh, 2 through 4 certainly says that we can rejoice when we fall into various temptations or trials. Um, specifically, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, certainly, trials can test us can produce patience can have valued results strengthening our spiritual you know attitudes and behaviors and resilience if you will and certainly we should test ourselves uh, first or second corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith test yourselves uh, do you not know yourselves that jesus christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified so certainly trials have a valid role in our life and strengthen us. I don't know if we can actually, though, uh, within the scriptures, authorize us to pray to God to, okay, God, let me have it. It's like, I nah, I, I, I can't think of a verse that would uh, indicate that's something we should do. Brian, can you think of anything? No,
0: I cannot. And I agree with you. That's not something I want to do. Like, oh, Lord, test me. I'll pass any test you give me. It's like, hmm. No thanks. I think there's enough tests just going through life in and of itself, right, for us to prove whether or not we're faithful. So,
1: well, and I th- you know that's a good point because there's almost uh, the hint of pride there. It says, "Oh Lord, I am so strong. Okay, I'm ready. You know, let me have it." It's like, mm, uh, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. First Corinthians uh, chapter ten, verse thirteen, in that area. Yeah, so
0: true, so true. Well, we've covered a lot of different subjects under this broad umbrella, like we said early on, uh, of Christianity. And so as a result, there's you know a lot of different categories that we'd like to point you to on our website, BibleQuestions.org. You can, uh, when you get to the website on our homepage, you'll see there's a topics menu. You can select that, and there, the alphabetical index within, or Jeff, who administers the site, done a nice job of also putting the alphabetical index on the front page. So you can literally just you know see it from left to right across the page a through z and you can click on a for authority d for divorce g for giving l for lord's supper m for marriage p for prayer and s for sin and so uh, yeah christianity is certainly a broad category of all things you know doing what god wants us to do but hopefully you found some of these questions that have been submitted useful as jeff touched on earlier as well if you have a question that you don't see addressed on our website feel free to click that ask a question button submit it and then within a couple of days you'll receive a scripture filled answer
1: thank you for listening to this edition of the bible questions podcast we invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org where you can find over a thousand scripture filled articles on a wide variety of bible topics along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.